This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Launchpad on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Launchpad here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, a leading venture capital firm where we focus on investing in early stage companies. So I'm really excited about our guest on today's show. It's Michael Baum. He's joining me via Zoom from France. He's a serial entrepreneur and investor. He's the founder of six startups, which includes the first big data focused company to go public. And that company, Splunk, has a market cap today of over $30 billion. His foundation, Founder.org, has invested in more than 125 young innovators applying technology to some of the world's most challenging problems. And he's now CEO and founder at Vivant. It's a platform to help subscribers better buy and understand their wines. And also, very interestingly, back in 2014, Michael and his family acquired Chateau de Pomar in Burgundy, and he's converted the property into a leader in biodynamic winemaking. Michael, thanks for joining me today. Pleasure to be here and see you again, Rob. So one quick question for you. You're, you're, in, you're in France right now. How, how are you holding up during the pandemic and what have the last nine months been like for you? It's been a roller coaster here, uh, I think. Much like the United States, although a bit different in terms of the number of cases, although now it appears both France, the, uh, the EU, and the United States are on a pretty exponential rise in cases. Uh, we started the lockdown early here in the spring, uh, in March. Uh, my kids and my wife were in California, and I was here, and it was very different lifestyle for the two of us. Yeah, I would think so. Have you been able to get your family over there yet? We, uh, we managed to. Uh, both of my kids had to come home from university, uh, as many families have had to do. And uh, my one son's school opened back up in Ohio, and he's back in school. The other one who's in school in Los Angeles, uh, the school, the campus is still closed. And he decided he didn't want to sit in front of a computer for eight hours a day again and do online classes. So he is um, he is majoring in permaculture, and he decided to come over here and and work the land uh, in France for a couple of months. Great. Well, I guess it's good for anybody growing up to learn about working the land, what it means to actually get your hands dirty and actually do hard work. So I'm really glad to hear that. Now, speaking of childhood, before we get into talking about Splunk and the other companies you've, you've built over time and your, your journey as an entrepreneur, would love to hear about what it was like growing up in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia region. I believe you're over in Cherry Hill, New Jersey as well. And how did, how did your path into entrepreneurship unfold? Wow. I don't know if it was so much a, a path as maybe a strange set of circumstances. And um, I think, I mean, you know, we talk a lot about entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley. There are certain people who just have the urge to create. And I think I'm one of those. And it took me a while to figure that out. I feel like in high school and college, maybe I was a bit of an oddball. Um, <laughs> people would call a nerd right? Into math, into science. Um, but surprisingly, I never saw a computer till I got to high school. Uh, or sorry, to college. Uh, when I got to university, I went to Drexel University in Philadelphia. Um, we were the first school that Steve Jobs convinced to um, require a Macintosh of every entering freshman. Holy cow. Yeah. So... <laughs> You can imagine, we all had these 128K Macs, uh, 128K being the amount of memory, if you can imagine. <laughs> a computer, right, kilobytes. Right, yeah. right. Uh, I think you have more memory than that in almost any electronic device today, right? Um, but it was, it was truly a revelation to, to sit there with a, a screen and a mouse and use Mac Paint and Mac Draw and flip images on the screen. So... I instantly became very, very curious about 
what is an operating system? How does a compiler work? All these sort of computer science things and quickly switched my major from electrical engineering to computer science. And that, you know, that started a 30 year fascination with software. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like Steve Jobs has had a lot of impact on people through universities over the years. And it's easy to forget that for a decade or two, Apple, and probably still is, was very, very focused on seeding the university environment with their Macintosh and with their operating system. And it sounds like it had a pretty significant influence on you. And at what point you were talking about how you realized that you were a creator. Were you starting companies when you were in high school or was it not until college where you started to really think about not just learning, but actually creating new things? No, it wasn't really until uh, university. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to a university that had what we call a cooperative education program. So our, our undergraduate degree, unlike most US uh, students, was five years instead of four years. We would go to school for six months, then we would go into industry and work full time for a company for six months. Um, I worked uh, all of my uh, co-op assignments with IBM. <laughs> most people listening that are younger probably don't even remember what IBM is but uh, one of the first computer companies. And I was fortunate enough to work on some very groundbreaking projects with them, including the original IBM PC. Um, and then uh, in California, I worked in their very advanced uh, software research lab in Silicon Valley on uh, advanced compiler and operating system technologies. So during university, I managed to get a glimpse inside of the cutting edge aspect of the software industry. And this, this for me was just invaluable in my career. Was that the first time you'd been to California? So IBM asked you to come out as part of the co-op program? It, it, it was. Um, I mean, other than vacations with my family to the East Coast, uh, you know, South Carolina, Florida, places where all families went from the, the Northeast. It was the first time I was ever out of uh, that region of Philadelphia. So it was, um, it was well, that must have been dramatic. an interesting trip. Yeah, yeah that must have been yeah. a very interesting trip. And were you living in San Francisco or were you living down in Silicon Valley proper? No, I, I was living in, I, I suppose, what now people would call San Jose, because I think San Jose has annexed the land. But I drove my 1978 Camaro from Philadelphia to Morgan Hill. Uh, on Lake Anderson, and wow. I, okay. I rented I rented a room from a family there uh, in their cellar, and the second night I was sleeping in the house, we had an earthquake. <laughs> Welcome to California. <laughs> the epicenter of the earthquake was in the middle of the lake, Lake Anderson. The house was on the lake, and I woke up about eight feet from my bed on the floor. Holy so, cow. Uh, that's what, it sounds like that was a real earthquake. Even I haven't experienced that after having lived in the Bay Area for 23 years. So, wow, what an introduction to, to California. So it sounds like yeah, you had a, yeah. a great experience and connecting the dots. So you graduated from Drexel and what was the path to the first startup? Did you just go start a company right away? And I, I did. I started a company when I was in my last year of university. Um, which is something I think a lot of students are doing today. And through that process, I had a real appreciation for how difficult it is. Um, I had an offer from Microsoft to join them in Bellevue, Washington. You know, I had offers with other uh, large technology companies at the time. And it was really difficult to decide to pass up a paycheck and go start your own company where there was no promise of any future. Right. It was it was all risk. Um, and I, I, later this became. Yeah, and I've got to believe my, particularly uh, hard because a lot of those companies were paying really well, too. Oh, so yeah, to go oh, yeah. and start something, people, I'm sure your parents were kind of like, hey, Michael, what what exactly are you <laughs> contemplating here? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's it's I think it's still difficult for students today. You know, we've had some entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley encouraging students to drop out of school and start companies. And with our foundation, founder.org, we have been more supportive of people graduating 
and writing them a check when they graduate to get their company off the ground. Um, so yeah, that's, that, that was probably a big part of the reason I started the foundation. Uh, I knew how hard it was for people to make that decision. Yeah, well, let's, let's come back to the foundation in a little bit, because I think it's one of the really important things you've done post-Splunk and post-taking it, it public. I, I think it was after that. But if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conybeer. You're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132. I am chatting right now with Michael Baum, who is a co-founder and former CEO at, who took Splunk public and is now worth over $30 billion. So tell me a little bit, I'm curious about the process of connecting with your founders the first time around and how that worked and what happened with the company and what you learned from that first experience, that company that you started while you were still at Drexel. It was um, a situation where I didn't know the two founders when we started the company. We got connected through um, other people that we knew in common. So there was, uh, you know, quite a steep learning curve in starting a company, getting to know two people. There were three of us that were co-founders. Um, and I would say, you know, when people, young people ask me for advice about starting companies, I always say, find a great co-founder or two, because it's the hardest thing you're ever going to do in your life, starting a company. Um, you're for sure going to have a lot of highs and a lot of lows, and it's a lot easier to make your way through that if you've got some great people you're working together with as co-founders. And what happened with the first company? What was the, you know, what did it grow into and what was the outcome? So the company was called Reality. Um, we built a simulation software for um, financial analysis. Um, I think we were the first people ever to take the Markowitz portfolio uh, theory of managing stocks and put it on a personal computer. Uh, the company was eventually acquired by Reuters um, and became a, a division of uh, Reuters supporting their high net worth um, technology group. And, and what at was that, that point- uh, sorry, Go ahead. Yeah. I was just gonna ask, what was that first acquisition like, that process when the company was acquired? It was, it was big education. And what I realized as an engineer at the time was I had no idea how to understand accounting or finance, read an income statement, read a balance sheet. Um, and that, I think that started a second curiosity with business for me. And did they come knocking? Did Reuters come knocking at one point and said, hey, we're interested in acquiring the company or we're interested in working more closely with you or how did it unfold? They, we were working with them already, so it was a bit of a natural that they reached out and said, let's, let's make this official. And, you know, they offered us a lot more money than was invested in the company. We actually had a little bit of venture capital from Philadelphia at the time, which was unusual. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, it, it was a great uh, marriage between the two companies, and I think both sides got a lot out of it. So what... What drove you or motivated you to go back to business school and go to Wharton? I, I developed this curiosity about business and wanted to understand it. Um, when I think a lot of business students went back to business school with me, but I was amongst the, uh, the group of you know, scientists, mathematicians that went back. And my interest was purely in exploring the hard skills of business, you know, learning about corporate finance, learning about accounting, learning about marketing. Um, so I had a very particular mission when I went back to business school, whereas I think a lot of people do it to sort of get a check mark, you know, to go on to the next level in Wall Street or consulting or something like that. Yeah, it's one of the things I think people overlook is there's actually a lot to learn at business school if you take it seriously while you're there. And it really seems to be bifurcated into people that do take the classes seriously and then other people that just say, hey, I'm just here to check the box and go do other stuff. And I think your attitude is actually remarkably unique for a lot of entrepreneurs, but you did go and, and spend the time doing it. I, I had a similar philosophy when I was at Warden, which is I want to learn everything I can about financial statements and how this works because I'm trained as an engineer, I haven't seen this before, but it's mm -hmm. all very logical and interesting uh, to see how it well, comes and together. I, I think guys like you and I were able to opt out of a lot of the core courses, right? Like quantitative analysis and operational management and 
we got to opt into classes like I'm sure you remember Jeremy Siegel's classes, right? On um, problems in financial statement accounting and things like this, which you know really taught us how the stock market viewed trends and new information. Uh, we would have people from CBS and CNBC come into his classroom on Monday mornings and interview him in front of the class on why do you think the market you know went up 100 points on Friday? So you've so you've bounced back and forth from what I can tell with your background between venture capital and startups, the six startups, but you were also at I think Rembrandt, Crosspoint, and Advent, so three yeah. different firms. And I'm curious, how do you how did you decide between a career in venture capital or career in entrepreneurship, starting companies, or was it more of an attitude of, hey, I'm just going to work my way along and do whatever is interesting. Probably the latter. <laughs> I would say I never really set out to have a career as an investor or in venture capital. Um, I think they were more logical stopping points for me when I was taking a break and thinking about the next thing to do. Um, but I've always been a person with an itch to scratch a thing to build, you know, something to create, which means I'm much more on the entrepreneurial side than on the investor side. So at what point going back and forth between entrepreneurial and investor, uh, did you reconnect or connect with Rob and Eric to get Splunk started? Uh, yeah, interesting story. <laughs> I, uh, I, I was on the investor side and I invested in a company that they were, uh, they were working for um, as uh, not, not as founders, but as a CTO and head of engineering. And that company eventually um, was acquired by another company. And we started talking about uh, new ideas, um, things we were interested in. I had uh, worked with Rob before about 10 years before, um, hired him in my first company when I came out to California. And I was at Yahoo at the time. Um, they had acquired a company I started with another friend called DotBank. Uh, it was a PayPal competitor. Um, and I had a lot of ideas about systems management. You know, Yahoo was one of the first pioneers on the web, as most people know. Um, which means we were at the apex of the transition between client server computing and web-based computing, which was a major shift in technology infrastructure for IT. So yeah, it sounds time, like it was think, probably as major at the time as what people talk about on-premise architecture to cloud architectures where everything is, yeah. you know, these major shifts where you, you have huge value created. And it seems like each shift now just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So, so anyways, so you had, you had known those guys, you'd invested in them before. And you said you started talking about these ideas. Where, where were you when you started talking about these ideas? Would you go to a coffee shop or would you meet in somebody's house or how did those conversations happen? We had many different places where we talked about these ideas. I would say the first was around my dining room table in San Francisco. Um, my wife and I had finally bought a house. Um, and after about two months, she said, you know, you guys should really get out of here and go start a company. <laughs> <laughs> Stop all this tacky stuff, actually go get something started. Yep, exactly. So we, we still really weren't sure what we were going to do. We, um, we, we knew what the problem was, but we didn't know what the solution was at the time. Um, I would say it took us another three or four months of really thinking about this, talking to potential customers. The big thing we did different with Splunk at the beginning was um, we talked to 62 different potential customers before we wrote a single line of code. And this was a whole different approach for me to starting a company. Yeah, and let me see if I can explain the core concept of Splunk. And I'm sure you're going to correct me here because I'm not an enterprise software guy. But we did pass on Splunk once or twice, which we will forever regret and do internally discuss at Shasta now and then. How, did, how could we have missed that? But the idea was when you look at IT infrastructure that's out there, when it does something that's significant or even insignificant, they do a lot of, there's, it basically 
puts together a log. It says, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did these things. And maybe it has like status, et cetera. And as infrastructure has gotten more and more complex, you have more and more logs that get generated from all the things that are going on in that infrastructure. And the people that were operating the IT infrastructure were having trouble keeping up with understanding or troubleshooting, like what went wrong, like if an infrastructure started to break. So you created a search engine and tools that would allow IT uh, administrators and people building the infrastructure to understand and troubleshoot what's going on. That's a, a great description. To, to go back to client-server, when you just had a server and you had a client, it was fairly easy to look at those logs and understand what was happening. There weren't many places where the logs were stored. The logs were fairly simple. But with web-based computing, you now had the internet, a big complicated network. You had uh, a database. You had an application server, a web server, security infrastructure, many different pieces of software and hardware all connected and working together to allow us to do something over the internet. Um, you know, when my parents say, oh, the internet is so slow, I say, mom, dad, if you <laughs> knew how this stuff worked, you'd be amazed it works at all. <laughs> because it, to your point, it is very, very complex. And uh, as humans, it's become very difficult for us to understand these often chaotic systems and how they're working. Um, so the, you know, the solution was right under our nose. Uh, I was at Yahoo, you know, we were big players in search at the time. Um, so when we eventually thought, well, if, if people can search billions of web pages, why can't they search through all this log data? But the challenge was then how do we build a search engine that works with machine generated data, not documents and web pages. Um, and we spent several years figuring that out. We have um, very broad ranging uh, patents that we filed on this and really nobody has been able to duplicate what we've done. Yeah, so it, it, it sounds like you, or I'm guessing you, you started with this idea of, hey, there's all this log information that's out there. So there's a lot of information that we can actually mine or IT administrators would like to mine to be able to troubleshoot or improve infrastructures. And then you spent a while, part of what you're talking about around the dining room table is how do we solve this problem so you must have had some ideas you threw out as well as the ones that you kept as well in terms of how to solve this problem oh we we threw out many different ideas and what's kind of fascinating is is we settled on what i would say was the simplest kind of aha idea but it took us quite a long time to get there and i feel like that's the same with any type of innovation there's no shortcut to iterating through all the, um, I won't say bad, but maybe not so effective approaches to something. It's like designing a beautiful product, a piece of hardware or user interface. You really have to throw out a lot of alternatives before you get to the one that is beautiful and simple. So you talked about the 62 people, I think 62 roughly customers you talked to. When you went to talk to them, would you say, hey, we're working on this tool that allows you to search or organize all the log data. Would you go and give them demos and talk that through? Or was it more about problem identification or was it about solution, your, your solution, your product validation? I would say it was much more around initially problem validation. So the problem was rampant, right? It was, I have a web-based application that generates revenue. And if it's down, I'm losing revenue. Um, so we were, you know, we were talking to all the big early internet sites and the people running their IT infrastructure. Um, so very quickly we got through, okay, the first 10 customers, everybody validates the problem. Now the question is how do we solve this problem? Um, and we had, we had great ideas about how to do this, but as I mentioned, they were all too complicated. And many of the customers looked at it and they said, I know that you wanna do this in a complicated way. You really wanna automate all of this stuff, but let me tell you what I really need. What I really need is a way for my smartest people who know how to do this to be more productive. And that's when we stumbled upon, okay, let's, let's apply search to this. This is, this is the right way to do this.
Yeah, because a lot of people are getting used to search to solve a lot of their problems. I mean, that's kind of another way to think about being in the slipstream of Google, or you talked about the Yahoo background that you guys had before already, that mm. mindset. And I think the other thing I remember from the earlier days of the company was when we looked at you as an enterprise company, you were much more thoughtful about what is the experience like for the user within the enterprise? So you'd bring some consumer mindset, consumer thinking to it. And enterprise and business to business software before had been a lot of stuff that was actually pretty wonky and hard to understand and not a lot of fun. And you could bring a little bit of fun and some very strong user experience um, thoughts to something so you could build a brand. So even if, I'm sure you built something that was better, but even if it was equal, you would have users that say, you know what, I prefer using Splunk because it, it's actually, it's just easier, more intuitive, fun to use. And that was a big part of what we borrowed from, you know, being in the consumer internet industry at that point, right? We saw how people were really gravitating to more easy to use interfaces, uh, web-based interfaces, not complicated applications. But it, you know, we went beyond that, as you know, with our free download model. So the, we, we were, I mean, I was at, at Yahoo, I was running a fairly big IT budget at Yahoo and I really didn't like the way I had to buy software. You know, a, a big software company would come to me, you know, fill in the name and they would say, okay, well, if you give us a million and a half dollars, we'll install the software and we'll help you make it successful. And oh, by the way, we'll charge you professional services dollars to do that. Um, it was a bit like jumping off of a cliff and not really knowing where you were going. So um, we thought, wow, wouldn't it be interesting to do this um, in the way that people were experiencing open source software at the time? You download it for free, you install it, you get to experience it. And if you like it, okay, now you can go further, you can buy a license. The challenge we had with open source, and we had a lot of venture capitalists tell us early on that you should be open source. That was a big trend. And you know how investors like to pile on these trends. Yeah, it's uh, the uh, everything Everything looks like a nail when you have a hammer mindset. <laughs> yeah, but you said, hey, we're gonna reject open source, but we are going to do this free to use initial product to build adoption and awareness with the product. Correct, and the adoption model that was our reference point was the mobile phone market. You could walk into uh, an AT&T T-Mobile store in downtown San Francisco at the time and get a free phone, but then you paid for the minutes. So said, <laughs> oh, this is interesting, right? Let's yeah, get no, everybody to I download the software. One of the things that some of the most interesting companies have done over time is they don't do the standard playbook, but at the same time, they look for analogies from other industries and consumer interactions to help build new business models around a technology. So we're going to need to take a short break, uh, Michael, but we're going to continue our conversation. When we get back, stay tuned. We're going to talk about when Michael and his co-founders realized that they had a tiger by the tail and they were growing rapidly and what it was like to go public and also what Michael's been doing post-Splunk IPO. Hang with us. We'll be right back. I'm Rob Connybeer. This is Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio. Welcome back to Launchpad on Sirius XM's Business Radio. I'm Rob Connybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. Today, I'm joined by Zoom from France my, with my guest, Michael Baum. He is the founder of six startups, including Splunk, which has a market capitalization today in excess of $30 billion. And we're going to talk now about uh, how the company went public and what Michael has been up to since Splunk. So, Michael, again, thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be with you, Rob. So... At what point was Splunk? We were talking before the break about how you and your two co-founders came up with the idea, got Splunk started, and did the customer validation and hit on a business model that allowed you to grow quickly. But 
At what point did you realize that you were really onto something, the company was growing fast and that you were headed on a, an IPO trajectory? Never. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, you know, I think as a, as a person building products constantly, you get to version one and you think nobody will ever buy this because you're working on version two. And version three and four and five are the same thing. You know, Splunk is on now version eight. Uh, you, you're just always looking forward and very rarely looking back. The, the idea of going public when we did was probably the one rare moment in my involvement with the company where I actually took a little bit of time to think about what we had done. Um, but not so much before that. You, you know, you're just, you're in the middle of it and you're building so quickly the, the time when we did go public, which was May uh, 12, 2012, the world was in a bit of a funky state. The, the economy was not so good. The stock market was not so good. Um, and it was a bit strange to see the world around you in a melee, you know, global economy. And our business was just growing so quickly and still is. The company is still growing at 40% plus, you know, a year, which for a company doing a few billion in, in sales is pretty remarkable. Yeah, and, and when the company went public, and, and I think it, it's pretty interesting with Splunk, it, it, it went public in a time where really a lot of companies weren't going public. It was kind of mm -hmm. a challenging time. So at what point did, did the company start saying, hey, you know what, it actually is time for us to go public. I mean, there was a period of time around that time when you look at a lot of companies, they're like, it wasn't cool to go public. They're like, hey, we're gonna stay private for as long as yeah. we can. So what was it that, that drove the decision at the time eight years ago to go public? We, we needed the money. Uh, the company is um, quite strange in relation to today's software companies in Silicon Valley. We raised only 40 million US dollars in, in capital before we went to the public market. Uh, we were growing quickly. Uh, I mean, as you know, when, when you're in a company that's growing at 100, 200% a year, you're putting every dollar of earnings back into sales, marketing, R&D. Uh, so there is, there is really no positive cash flow. There's a negative cash flow. Um, and we saw this greenfield market in front of us and we thought, well, we can, we can go to the private market for money or we can go to the public market for money, but we need to go somewhere for money. So we decided to test the, the public markets in um, early 2012. Um, it, it, you're right, it was a bit of a strange time to go out. The, um, the day we went public, the other company to go public on NASDAQ was Toomey, the luggage company. <laughs> Yeah, it was an interesting time. So, so you took the company public, company continued to do well, and you started to move on to some other things that you've been working on. And the things that I'd, I'd love to hear about are our founder and the winery, uh, but maybe just starting briefly, just how and why did you get founder.org started and, and what is its mission? So Founder.org is focused on working with um, students, as I was, graduating university, who have kind of a crazy technology idea that is likely to take longer than what most investors would deem as a acceptable time horizon. And we uh, write most of these students their very first check. Uh, we give them $100,000 and then, uh, you know, if they proceed well in working with us over a couple of months, we often write bigger checks. Um, we've done now in the last eight years, uh, 128 companies from 50 different universities in North wow. America and Europe. And some of them are becoming real companies now. Um, so it's, it's is there one in particular that you're is there one in particular you're particularly proud of that's come through founder.org? Oh, that's like asking which one of my wines is my favorite wine or which one of my twin boys is my favorite boy, right? Well, um, we, can, we can avoid it if you don't, if you don't want to <laughs> head down that road. Well, let me, let, let, let me give you an idea of a couple of them. Um, one of the companies which is out of uh, Alta University in, in Helsinki, Finland is ISAI. 
and they have built uh, one of the very first commercial satellite networks that uses radar, not video, to take images of the planet and observe planetary change on the planet. Why is this exciting? Um, with video, you can't see at night, you can't see through cloud cover, you can't see through objects. Um, with radar, you can do all of that. Um, they also fly in a fairly low orbit so they can revisit the planet uh, four times a day in a single location. Um, so this is, you know, this is a remarkable company started by a couple of 22 year old kids um, that is now, you know, a really serious company in this space. Um, another one is in uh, right in your backyard in Silicon Valley there, uh, a company called Echo, which came out of um, UC Berkeley. And when I met Connor Landgraf and uh, Jason Ballett, the two co-founders, they were students, uh, undergraduate students at UC Berkeley in a class that was challenging them to think about new uses for mobile uh, phone technology. And they came up with the idea to create a digital stethoscope that doctors could use to not just listen acoustically to your heart, but record that sound, send it up to the cloud, compare it to tens of thousands of known arrhythmias, which by the way, no doctor can re remember, and tell the doctor what's going on with the patient. Um, well, it sounds like a great combination there of the hardware piece, which has become yeah. increasingly con commoditized. You can build relatively cheap, cheaply, and your big data background where you could see how this could really work together where the network effects could start to become really strong for a product like that. Yeah, I would say all the companies I've involved in have a big data component to them. And to your point, surprisingly, I'm not a hardware person, but a lot of them have a hardware component as well. Uh, Konix is a company out of Munich, Germany, that has a sensor for high-speed rail systems. So rather than sending a crew of 10 people out every time you want to see if a switch is opening and closing properly, you have a sensor that's picking up all the data and it can tell you that at any moment's notice. Um, the sensor also can listen to the vibration from the rolling stock and tell you which asset is traveling on your rail, how fast it's going, is it on time, is it behind? So it turns out there's so many uses in connecting the physical world to the virtual world through pieces of hardware. Yeah, well, it's gotta yeah, be well, challenging. Balancing all these balls, juggling all these balls in the air. But um, if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, Channel 132. And I am continuing my conversation with Michael Baum, the co-founder and CEO, former CEO, I should say, because he was involved with the company for quite a while, Splunk, which is now worth well in excess of $30 billion. So... After Splunk, you got founder.org started, and that's backed over 125 entrepreneurs at this point. And you're also actively involved in wine now. And unlike a lot of kind of successful Hollywood executives, tech executives that look at moving to Napa or moving to Sonoma and getting into the wine business, you actually went a lot further afield and managed to connect with Chateau Pomar. Uh, in Burgundy, and I don't think I've ever heard of an American actually uh, taking uh, control of uh, operations at a uh, at a French winery. So how did how did that unfold? How did that happen? Well, in fact, in 2014, my wife and I, when we acquired the Chateau de Pomar, we became the first Americans to ever own uh, wine producing land in Burgundy. So yes, it is quite a first. We were, um, we were looking in France to, to get involved in the wine industry here. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of old world wines, um, in particular, uh, the wines of France, areas like Burgundy, Alsace, Rhone. Um, so it was a, you know, a long-term dream, but very difficult to do something uh, here in France as an outsider. And was there been more by interest in France and the wines? Did, did you already speak French? Did you take French in the past? Or was it just, I love the wines and I want to dive in? 
it was, I love the wines and I want to dive in. I, I never studied French. Um, I speak a bit of French now, mostly from what I learned from my colleagues. But uh, no, I, I think it was also the attraction to a different culture, a different way of life. Um, the, uh, the speed in, uh, in Burgundy is very different than the speed in Silicon Valley. We, uh, we measure time here in years and decades versus, you know, minutes and hours in Silicon Valley. And how did it unfold? So how did you come across the opportunity? And then what was it like integrating yourself into the operations of, of a chateau that's been operating for hundreds of years? Well, we, uh, the, the place has always been family owned and operated. So we're the fifth family since 1726 to, uh, to run the business. Um, of course, we're the first American family. The other families were all French. Uh, the former owner um, owned it for 10 years. And I met him through, um, you know, back to a tech industry connection, met him through uh, a person at UBS who was involved in taking our company uh, public, Splunk. And he was, um, he had set up his daughter to run the business, but she graduated from the London School of Economics and called her dad in the spring of 2014 and said, I'm going to New York and I'm going to work in marketing for Ralph Lauren. So her father, who was, you know, getting on in his years then, uh, decided to sell the business. He really wanted to sell it to a family, but he had several big companies that had made him offers. And we came in really at the last minute. Um, he gave us two weeks to make a decision. Um, and it, you know, it's a, it's a big property. So it was a big decision. It was August. If you've ever been to France in August or you've ever worked in France, you know, nobody works in August. So to find a lawyer, you know, an accountant to review the numbers in August was nearly impossible. But we did it and uh, we, uh, we became the owners um, in August of 2014, six years ago. So when you started working with the property after you acquired the property, at what point did it evolve from, I wanna understand what they're doing in the history and really understand the operations to now here's a vision for where my family would like to take it into biodynamic uh, winemaking and viticulture as opposed to what had been done historically. How did that unfold? You mentioned history. There was a lot of learning about history to be done here. Uh, one of the first things I did was I hired two art historians in Paris to study the history of the property. And they scoured uh, libraries across France, locally um, and in other regions to really pull together a very comprehensive uh, hundred page document about the history of the property. Um, and it's, it's fascinating. The, the history of Chateau de Pomar is um, really a history of the world, a history of France, a history of Europe. Um, it was started originally by King Louis XV. It was his uh, secretary, a man named uh, Vivant Miko, who came here to make wine for the king's daughter when she got married. And uh, so it's always had a very, very storied past to it. So studying the history was the first thing we did. Um, from there, your, your point about what was the vision that you know, our family wanted to pursue here um, it was a big education for us. We realized that we don't really own this place. We're only the stewards of this place for the time we are here. Um, so when we developed our vision for what we wanted to do, we listened to a lot of people, um, two people who were instrumental in this. One was our winemaker here, uh, Emmanuel Sala. He's been here 15 years. He's a, he's a Burgundian through and through. Um, and he really wanted to take the land back to natural viticulture. Um, another person I consulted with is a California, Californian, a man named Ted Lemon, um, who operates a winery called Litteri um, up in Sonoma County. And he has been one of the pioneers of organic farming in California. And they both really convinced me that it was such a rare opportunity to have a property like this to 
convert into organic and now biodynamic farming that it just seemed like we had to do it as stewards of the property. We had to do this. Yeah, no, it sounds like it must've been a pretty interesting time because I'm guessing when Emmanuel saw you coming in to a certain extent, you were getting to know him, but I'm guessing that he was probably interviewing you a little bit to decide whether he wanted to stay on because you have the California tech executive comes to France and buys the Chateau. That must've been a very interesting dynamic, but it, it sounds like it's evolved to a place where your winemaker is very excited about doing this because there's probably capital available to pursue a lot of the things that he's wanted to do to really create a name for himself and for, and for the property as well. And you've been able to really, as you were saying, steward this evolution that, you know, my, my suspicion is it may actually lead to a lot of other people in Burgundy and in France starting to adopt some of these ideas from California, which I guess would kind of be against, uh, you know, historical practice. Well, I, I hope actually it goes the other way around. Um, France today is, is the world's leader in organic and biodynamic viticulture. Um, today, if you look worldwide, only about 3% of all the vines under management in the world are farmed organically or biodynamically, which means 90% of the wine that people are drinking has chemicals in it um, that you probably really don't want to be putting into your body. Hmm. Um, those chemicals also get in the way of the wine. You know, uh, the grape is a miracle of nature. It has everything it needs to turn into wine by itself with very little or no help from, from humans. Um, the challenge with all the chemicals are putting in the ground is they make farming easier and less expensive, but they don't allow the grape to achieve its full potential. Um, so I, I hope actually that France starts to have an impact on the rest of the world and we see more wines being made in a uh, responsible way. It's better for the consumer. It's better for the planet. Well, it sounds like for sure you haven't done anything even resembling retiring right now because a lot of people might do something like that and then just hand it all off as opposed to getting deeply involved with understanding it and then really thinking about how you could position it and build a business and build a movement around this. So it sounds like you have real love for it. So the thing I'm curious about is how do you balance your time right now? You have a ton of things going on. You have the Chateau and winemaking being one of those things. You have founder.org. You have other companies that I'm sure you're advising and working with. How do you decide what to spend time on? I don't think I've ever been very good at time management. I think uh, most entrepreneurs are not. Uh, I suppose I gravitate towards the things that interest me. Uh, and this is, this is my guiding principle. Um, as you know, I'm sure you get asked to invest in lots of different things. Um, as do you know, most of us that have been in Silicon Valley for 20, 30 years. I never invest in things that I'm not personally involved in, that I'm not personally passionate about. Uh, and I think it's the same with my time. Um, take, for example, founder.org, 128 companies. Uh, I'm on the board of seven of them. And these are the ones that I'm really, really excited about and think I have something to offer to those teams that are running the companies. Um, and I suppose it's the same now. Uh, I'm struggling now to balance my time between the Chateau and this new project we have going on called Vivant which is a, um, I think it'll be the world's first wine experience uh, streaming platform online where we're letting people travel the world of wine uh, without leaving home. So we, we were so excited about the way our wines had transformed at the Chateau over the last six years with biodynamic farming that we wanted to share that with all the people who drink our wines around the world. And in 2017, we started getting on airplanes and flying to Asia and the US. And we were about six months in when I thought, okay, wait a minute, this is completely in conflict with our desire to do something responsible for the planet. So we stopped all that. We said, let's connect with people online. And this has been so successful that we started a whole company to do this 
not just for our wines, but for any winemaker who is making wines responsibly. So it's really taking what you've been doing in France, which was already groundbreaking, first American to own a chateau, uh, built, you know, in, in the wine trade and building it more into a movement. And I've got to believe with what's been going on with the pandemic this year, and, you know, quite simplistically, people drinking a little more than they used to, they're probably thinking about this a lot more, both on the consumer side, as well as the winemaker side, as well, being a lot more responsible and trading notes around this. For sure. We, we thought when we went out to this concept to French winemakers, that they would be extremely skeptical. But after three months of lockdown here, the whole world getting used to being on Zoom like we are today, it's no longer something that people look at and say, well, that's so far off in the future, I don't need to get involved in it. They look at it and they say, I mean, we're talking about the most technically phobic winemakers in the world here in France. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we have been astounded by the support for the project. Um, in all the wine regions we're working in. Yeah, well, it's, it's a heck of a story. And for Vivant, for people who want to learn more about it, where should they go? And I did Google it before the show. And unfortunately, if you just Google it, there's a company, another company similarly named that seems to be doing a lot of the ad buys. So what is the best way, Vivant, which is a completely different company. So if people <laughs> want to find Vivant, where do they go? So they go to vivant.com. ECO. Um, ECO is a new domain um, prefix for companies that pledge to a responsible, sustainable business. Um, so they go to vivant.eco. Uh, we are in a stealth mode right now, and you can sign up for early access. We are launching the platform the first week of December. So you will be able to, at that point, come on and take part in live wine experiences from different wine regions around the world. Well, great. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining, joining me today. We're going to need to wrap. And also for people that want to follow you, are you on Twitter? Is there an easy place that people can follow Michael Bob? Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, if you just search on my name, you'll find me. Great. Michael, thanks again. And also, thank you for joining us. If you missed any of the last hour, you can check it out on demand on the SiriusXM app, and you can follow Business Radio on Twitter at SXM Business. You can also follow me at Rob Connybeer. I'm Rob Connybeer, a founder and managing director at Chasta Ventures, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, SiriusXM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.